Welcome to the Football Pink podcast, hosted by Roddy Cairns. The Football Pink is a website, magazine and documentary podcast series bringing you long-form stories and nostalgia from across the world of football. For fans of the England national team, the World Cup is a tournament that evokes decidedly mixed emotions. Injustice at Mexico 86, embarrassment in South Africa and Brazil in the 2010s, heartbreak at Italia 90, and of course, glory at Wembley in 1966. One tournament which taps into a number of these emotions is France 98. It was the tournament which made legends of both Zidane and Ronaldo, a month-long jamboree of football and colour in the French sun. For England, it was a tournament that promised so much, but ultimately left the fans with a feeling of what might have been. It was quite an exciting time. You know, we had David Beckham coming through, we had some established good players who did well in 96, and also this young striker as well. I ran around my living room celebrating, positive we would now win the game at Canter, become world champions, in 10 years time, it would be me and Michael partnering England up front. The first major tournament you remember will always occupy a special place in any football fan's heart. For the young enthusiast, the novelty of top-quality football becoming an everyday occurrence is incredible, mixed in with the sense of wonder and excitement as your horizons broaden, and you realise that there's a whole footballing world out there beyond the team that you support. Who is that talismanic number 10 pulling the strings for Iran? Why is that Mexican goalkeeper wearing such a ludicrous jersey? And where on earth is Trinidad and Tobago? It's not just the games that grab people's attention, but also the build-up to the tournament. The 30-page pull-outs from newspapers covering each team in depth and giving a month-long fixture planner. The official sticker books, containing not only unheard-of players from unknown nations, but even several players that won't actually appear at the tournament itself. The flags dangled from windows or stickers added to car rear windows. An international tournament is one of the few situations where people put aside club tribalism and come together, drink together, cheer together. It almost doesn't matter if the tournament itself is a letdown, whether that be from a poor overall standard of football, a lack of any decent underdog stories, or even your own team disappointing yet again. This cocktail of different ingredients comes together for one wonderful month in the early summer, when football is everywhere and everything is football. For me, that first tournament was Euro 96, which invokes memories of Colin Hendry taking on the world in that magnificent tartan kit. But that's a story for another day. For Football Pink contributor Graham Hollingsworth, it is France 98 that fills that special place in his memory, and in particular England's run to the last 16. When France 1998 came around, I was just seven years old. Back then I spent all my free time playing football, whether at school with my friends, for my Cub Scouts team on a Saturday in a local park, but usually just at home on my own in the garden. I was too young to be caught up in the Euro 96 and Three Lions excitement, so for me, this was the first occasion to put on some face paint and beg my parents to buy me an England shirt. While it isn't considered a classic, 
that 98 home shirt will always be my favorite England shirt. So much so that I recently bought a replica of it for an almost embarrassing amount of money. The collar is very 1990s, as were the red side panels. It really is a product of its time, and it isn't any surprise that they changed the design rapidly for the next tournament. With England having failed to qualify for USA 94, this would be their first appearance at the World Cup since the emotional loss to West Germany in the semi-finals of Italia 90. In addition, with Euro 96 having been hosted in England and the team having once more come within a Teutonic penalty shootout of reaching the final, excitement and expectation was high. Qualifying for France 98 had looked simple enough in a group containing Georgia, Moldova and Poland, but a final day showdown against Italy for top spot in the qualifying group afforded the kind of drama which whets the appetite for the real thing. Football Pink contributor James Bolam recalls that decisive match in Turin. England kept the ball well in that game. Got a lot of possession, good passing. Didn't have a great deal of chances, but they did almost snatch the game right at the end when Ian Wright went around the keeper, but unfortunately hit the post. That was a great one from Wright. And then straight away after that, the Italians went straight down the other end and almost won the game through Del Piero. But it was a good, solid performance, epitomised perhaps by Paul Ince, who uh, damaged his head during the match. And in echoes of Terry Butcher against Sweden in 1989 qualifier when England needed to dig out a result. Another combative English player, this time Paul Ince, was the hero uh, for carrying on during the game then. Obviously, that probably wouldn't happen now. But yeah, the draw was enough. It was a good performance. I was in the pub watching that game because uh, the second game, the away game, was on Sky. And there was a lot of tension and an ominous explosion of joy when Wright almost nicked it at the end. But we, we got the job done and didn't look out of place away at Italy. You know, we kept possession. We didn't look like a lumpy England side as we had in the past. So you could, you could see the improvements under Hoddle. So to top the group with the only one defeat was good and set it up nicely for the, the actual tournament itself. Although you had to feel a little sorry for Italy. They didn't actually lose a game through the whole of the qualifying phase and still only finished second and had to go into the playoff. England were heading to the World Cup at the top of their qualifying group and would once again take their place at the top table of international football. Looking back at the squad that Hoddle took with him to France, there was a deep well of quality players on which to draw, all of whom were playing in the rapidly improving English Premiership. Undisputed number one David Seaman was backed up by experienced deputies in the shape of Nigel Martin and Tim Flowers. At centre-back, established stars such as Tony Adams, Martin Keown and Saul Campbell competed with the emerging Rio Ferdinand. In midfield, there was a good blend of solid workhorses such as Paul Ince and David Batty, with some more dynamic forward-thinking players such as David Beckham, Paul Scholes and Steve McManaman. Up front, England had an embarrassment of riches. Skipper Alan Shearer was nailed on to start, with the fight to partner him coming down to Teddy Sheringham, Les Ferdinand and the inexperienced Michael Owen. It's almost more enlightening to look at the strikers Hoddle didn't take to France. Manchester United star Andy Cole was left out, with Hoddle, perhaps harshly, suggesting he needed four or five opportunities to score a goal. Likewise, fitness issues meant that both Ian Wright and Robbie Fowler weren't even on the plane. Clearly, this was one area where England were spoilt for choices. One of the biggest controversies surrounded the dropping of Paul Gascoigne, the mercurial midfielder who had been a mainstay of the side since 1990. Everyone remembers Gaza's tears against Germany in 1990, 
and then the injury and personal problems that followed. Despite shining during parts of Euro 96, including that incredible goal against Scotland, his powers had been slowly waning ever since. He had appeared in many of the qualifiers for France 98, but following some disappointing performances in the warm-up games against Morocco and Belgium, Hoddle made a controversial call and decided to go in a different direction for his midfield. England's opponents in Group G would be Tunisia, Romania and Colombia. The Romanians were perhaps the best known of these opponents, with their squad containing Georgi Hadji, the former Barcelona and Real player who was known as the Maradona of the Carpathians, as well as Chelsea's Dan Petrescu. Colombia, meanwhile, could count Newcastle legend Tino Asbria and Carlos Valderrama, the nation's greatest ever player and owner of possibly world football's greatest ever hairdo, among their ranks. England's opening match against Tunisia kicked off at 1.30pm on Monday the 15th of June. Extra excitement went around the playground that morning as it announced we'd be able to watch the game in our classroom instead of having to go to lessons. Watching football and not having to learn about fractions, what result that was. For the opening fixture, Hoddle opted to put the experienced Teddy Sheringham up front to partner Shearer. Then a three-man central defence with Darren Anderson at right wing back, leaving no space for David Beckham. As Barry Davies said at the beginning of the game, it's about having a strength of squad and picking the right team for the right opponents. Watching back the highlights on YouTube, what really struck me was how involved Paul Scold was, constantly getting forward and creating chances. He scored the second goal just before full time, but in truth, the Manchester United midfielder could well have had three or four. His role in the midfield during his England career is a well-known story, constantly being shunted out of position to accommodate either Steven Gerrard or Frank Lampard or both. But before these two arrived on the scene, and with a strong base of Ince and Batty anchoring the midfield, he had the licence to go forward and demonstrate his creative flair. As a Liverpool fan, I am always very dismissive of any Man United legend, but here it is impossible not to appreciate his talent. The euphoric feeling among the England support was to last only one week. The game against Romania in Toulouse started at 8pm meaning little boys across England had to get special permission from their parents to stay up past bedtime to see it through to the end. The only change to the starting lineup from the first game saw Southgate make way for Gary Neville, who played on the right-hand side of the back three. After a fairly routine 2-0 win against Tunisia, then all England had to do was uh, beat Romania to qualify for the next round. Uh, it's easy to forget these days that Romania had a very good side in the 90s, as we saw at the 1994 World Cup. Uh, they had stars like uh, Georgie Hadji, uh, Dan Petrescu and Georgie Popescu. So they, it was a, a good Romania side. So it wasn't, it wasn't a given that England uh, would find that an easy game. And as it turned out, Romania did turn out to be uh, England's bogey side throughout the 1990s. Michael Owen got his first goal in uh, that game, coming off the bench with a bit of a poacher's finish in the box. But, you know, it was a disappointing result. They lost to Romania, who were too good for them that day. Uh, and like I say, something of a bogey side for England in the 90s. While the defeat to Romania left England's jacket on a bit of a shaky peg, they had only four days to wait before they got an opportunity to make amends, in the shape of a do-or-die clash against Colombia, with whom they were locked on level points. England's superior goal difference meant that even a draw would be sufficient to guarantee qualifications but defeat to the dangerous Colombians would see them crash out in disgrace. Hoddle made one change to his lineup, 
replacing Batty with the younger Beckham in the centre of midfield. With the game being on Friday evening, it nicely coincided with the weekly treat in our household of fish and chips. It also meant that with only a paper round to wake up for the following day, I was given special permission to stay up late to watch the whole match. For the Columbia game, I was actually uh, at Glastonbury. And it was one of those uh, one of those wet ones um, where it just didn't start raining and the whole festival site was a complete mud bath. And the previous evening, due to the rain, uh, I pretty much slept in a puddle. So I was absolutely soaking wet uh, through the duration of the game with only a beer to keep out the cold. Not the way you want to spend a, a must-win game, but um, England played well. I mean, early on, Lasso screwed a shot wide. Anderson scored his goal into the top corner from a tight angle. And it was just chance after chance for England. I can't recall Colombia having a chance in the match at all. And then David Beckham showed uh, what he he was capable of in terms of free kicks when he hit a beautiful one over the wall, dipping dipping lower than um, some of his other memorable free kicks, such as the one that came against Greece in qualifying for the 2002 World Cup. But yeah, it was all England. And despite the hammering rain at Glastonbury, England got the win that they needed. And then as soon as the game ended, the Lightning Seeds played the main stage at Glastonbury, opened the set with a raucous version of Three Lions, and then ended the set with the same song. So despite being soaking wet, it was a superb afternoon, and England were into the, the second round. The win against Colombia took England through to the last 16, and another South American showdown, this time against old foes Argentina. Being born in 1990, I wasn't really aware of the animosity between the two nations. I'd never heard of the Falklands and thought the hand of God was something to do with going to church. However, as the game progressed, I suddenly felt an anger and rage I never experienced before. By the end of the game, I announced to anyone who would listen, mainly just my cat, that I would never, ever visit Argentina as long as I lived. Argentina were one of world football's blue-chip teams and had advanced top of their group with a perfect record of three wins. Their squad was packed with names which would have sent a shiver down any opposing manager's spine. Batistuta, Simeone, Zanetti, Crespo. Besting them would be no mean feat. But the history between the two nations dictated that nothing less than success would do for the England fans. The game had everything. Four goals, two penalties in normal time, a sending off, a disallowed goal and, of course, a penalty shootout. All in the space of just over two hours. It was a humdinger of a match between two really good teams, with the momentum swinging one way and then the other as the game unfolded. With the teams having each been awarded, and then scored... A soft penalty within the first 10 minutes of the game, the stage was set for a truly remarkable World Cup goal. One of those moments where a young player really does stand up and introduce themselves to world football. Enter Michael Owen. Remember, he was only 18 years old at the time. In this game alone, he won the penalty for England's equaliser, scored a penalty in the shootout, and scored possibly my favourite goal of all time. Picking up the ball just inside the opposition half, his touch took it past the left-back, Jose Chamot. He then hit top speed, racing towards the goal, all the while managing to hold off Chamot, who was desperately trying to knock him off course. The defenders were sitting so deep, right back on the edge of the penalty area, petrified of him sprinting through on goal. Instead, he dropped his shoulder and moved right, 
ghosting past Roberto Ayala before firing it beyond the onrushing goalkeeper, Carlos Roa. I ran around my living room celebrating, positive we would now win the game at Canter, become world champions, and 10 years' time, it would be me and Michael partnering England up front. There was still plenty of this match to play, though, and the celebrations of England fans were interrupted by an Argentina equaliser just before half-time. A well-worked free-kick drill saw Batistuta dummy the kick before Veron slipped it to Zanetti, who had wriggled away from the bamboozled English defence. The future inter-legend took a touch before powering the ball past Seaman to leave the game on a knife edge going into the second half. Whatever Hoddle's plans for the second half may have been, they were quickly thrown into disarray by an incident that is considered in some quarters to have been an act of disgraceful South American dark arts, and in others to have been a moment of unforgivable stupidity. Diego Simeone steamrolled into the back of Beckham, uh, flattening him there on the ground. And he leaned down and said something to him. I'm, I'm not sure what. But then uh, Beckham rather lightly flicked his right leg out and touched uh, Simeone. And Simeone made the most of it, going down, rolling around on the floor, etc. But what you have to understand is the difference in, in footballing cultures. As Diego Maradona famously said in, in the recent documentary about his life, football is a game of deception. And in Argentina and in South America... In general, that's that's considered part of the game. You do anything to win. And if it's deceiving people, whether that's with the ball at your feet or whether that's deceiving a referee to, to get an outcome that you want, then it's seen as perfectly acceptable part of the game. Whereas here in Britain, you know, it's just, it's just not cricket. That's not the way you behave. So the referee produced the red card and uh, Beckham was sent off. And you could see as he was leaving the pitch that he knew he'd, he'd made a mistake and he should have kept his call there. I actually know people to this day that really hate Diego Simeone, purely going back to uh, that incident with Beckham in, in 98. So, yeah, it, it was a bit silly from Beckham and, you know, obviously led to, to quite a backlash against him. Despite Beckham's dismissal, England were able to soak up Argentina's pressure for the rest of the match even creating some good chances of their own and seeing a Saul Campbell goal ruled out for a foul. Extra time came and went, and with the match still deadlocked at 2-2, England once again faced yet another penalty shootout. Despite seeing them finally break the curse and beat Colombia on penalties in the 2018 World Cup, I've experienced enough shootout disappointments that I now expect England to lose them as a matter of course. Back then, however, my young, naive mind hadn't been hurt before, so I wasn't prepared for what was to follow. David Siemens stopped Argentina's second penalty, but only for Paul Ince to immediately miss his following one. The Arsenal keeper even got close to a few of the others, but wasn't able to keep out any further efforts. It all then came down to David Batty. Kevin Keegan on the co-commentary, when asked if the Lewis midfielder would score, confidently said yes, and I believed him. Seconds later, it was all over. My heart was broken and the summer was ruined. France 98 was a tournament full of incredible moments and stories that had nothing to do with England. Dennis Bergkamp's magnificent goal against Argentina. Croatia's unlikely run to the semis. Brazil's Ronaldo looking completely unstoppable before being mysteriously dropped from the team for the final and then subsequently reinstated after apparently suffering a seizure. And, of course, 
host nation France winning their first ever World Cup. Inspired by the son of Algerian immigrants and a multiracial supporting cast, a moment that remains a significant milestone in that country's conversations with itself on race and immigration. For little boys and girls all over England, though, it was their country's four dramatic matches that made France 98 so special. I was concerned when researching this article that I'd been looking back at the tournament with rose-tinted glasses that only seemed so special to me because it was my first experience of a major international tournament. But having done the research, I don't think this is the case. It might not have been a vintage run for England, but the emergence of Michael Owen as an international superstar was incredible to watch. It really is unfortunate his injuries curtailed what would have been a tremendous career, but I always look back fondly on those England games and on him and of France 98. The 1998 World Cup, that was my first adult World Cup where, you know, I was 19, I could go to the pub and, and watch it. And I was older to, old enough to appreciate it a lot more than when I was a child. From an English perspective as well, okay, a disappointing uh, finish for England with going out on penalties again and again going out to Argentina. But the tournament as a whole, it was, it was a good tournament with lots and lots of great games and, and great goals. It's definitely one of the best World Cups I've seen. You have been listening to the Football Pink podcast. For more stories like this one, please subscribe to the podcast and visit footballpink.net.